This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Philip Miller from Nashville, Tennessee. Philip's an author of two books on trial law. One is Hitting the Bullseye, a book on focus groups, and the other one is on advanced depositions. Philip founded and teaches at the AHA Depositions College and is really good at helping someone get to the heart of a case working up your case and finding the best way to win it. I've learned a lot from Philip working with him for a couple days and in this conversation I hope you get something out of him too. Uh, How you doing Philip? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. Well thanks for coming here. Uh, So tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Well I, I never planned on being a lawyer. Really? No, never, never. I was. I grew up an army brat, so traveled all over the United States. Went to second grade here in San Antonio. Wow! But I went to third grade in uh, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, and fourth grade in Northern Michigan, and fifth and sixth grade in sort of rural Pennsylvania, and seventh, eighth, and ninth grade in Lawton, Oklahoma. Tenth uh, grade in Junction City, Kansas. 11th and 12th grade in Philadelphia, so wow. kind of all over the place. But uh, my father was an Army officer, but had a master's in hospital administration that he got here in San Antonio and affiliated with the program in Baylor. My mother was an Army nurse, so I was more oriented towards medicine and a medical career than I was law school. I never knew anybody who had been a lawyer before I went to law school. So what inspired you to become a lawyer? Um, both of my parents died within about 11 months. I'm sorry. And uh, so when my father died, we started having to deal with lawyers to probate his estate. And it was just sort of an unpleasant experience. And I thought I was going to go to law school to try to avoid that ever happening again. And I just moved to Nashville from Philadelphia uh, and didn't know anybody. And so it's like, not like I had anything to do with my time. So I started, they had, they had a night law school program. I already had a master's degree. And I said, well, I'll just go to school at night. And then within the first six months of starting law school, my mother passed away. So my going to law school did not solve any problems in terms of dealing with the estates of my parents. But, uh, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed learning, and I didn't have anything else. And really, if you move to a new town and you're 22 years old and you don't really know anybody there other than, you know, a baby sister or something like that, uh, you know, it's a good way to fill your time. So it, I, I enjoyed it. It was, t- it was really going to law school at night is just the hardest way to do it uh, because you don't have the it's sort of the camaraderie and fellowship associated with being full-time and you have the distractions of actually having to work yeah <laughs> <laughs> which uh, so but you know I got through it and it was okay and uh, then by that time I decided I'd probably practice law because I had basically taken a job as a systems analyst for the state of Tennessee uh, and gone as far as I was going to go uh, basically, and I said, well, I need to try something else. So I started practicing law, paying overhead. I uh, didn't have any cases, didn't know anybody, interviewed with some people, and they brought me in. Of course, I started paying $500 a month in overhead with no income. 
Oh, wow. In no cases. And uh, it worked out. So your first job wasn't a job where you got a salary. Your first job was one where you got to pay to be there? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. And shared, had shared secretarial services. I, I remember buying a, uh, a Macintosh and wiring the Macintosh to a printer using Twisted Pair, which is just like phone line. Uh, that was my first network computer I did myself. But it was, it was a great experience because I did everything. And then I learned that one of the things I liked to do was personal injury work. So the first cases, the first case I ever tried to a verdict was a personal injury case. And what kind of case? It was a car wreck case. Uh, it was, we had a case of, uh, um, I, got, I got a verdict for, I think $15,000 in punitives on the case. Oh, wow. Which was, it was my first case was the punitives damages case. And tried it to a verdict, and, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. I like being in the courtroom. I kind of like, uh, you know, talking to people and trying to communicate with them. That was a big, it was a big thrill. I enjoyed it. Still do. So how do you go from getting out of night law school and having to pay money to be at a law office to being brought in on cases across the country? What's that path like? How did you get the knowledge, experience, uh, reputation? Well, for me, it was all about education. I, you know, I really felt probably a little inferior in terms of my legal education because I went to a night law school. And, uh, and, and so I started getting and taking as much CLE as I could. But I, I topped out pretty quickly. After a few years, I mean, I'd taken all the NIDA courses and all the courses that were offered by uh, ATLA, the American Trial Lawyers Association. So I'd taken all that stuff, and I was trying cases, you know, two or three jury trials a year anyway. Um, but I was out of programs to go to, and I figured in some cases I probably knew as much as the people who were teaching. So I sort of uh, hustled around and, and got uh, – invited to be on faculty for a program for ATLA at the time. And I did a good job. I mean, I knew my stuff. You know, I'd, I'd write a paper because one of the criteria was, well, can you write a paper on this? You just can't get up and start shooting the breeze. So I wrote a paper on that. And the more I wrote and the more I read, the more I was exposed to other smart lawyers who were doing some similar things, I think the better I got. Yeah, I think I learned so much more from doing the research and writing the papers and having to really think about an issue deeper than I normally do than I'd learn from actually listening to the speech or anyone learns from listening to me. Yeah, and, and it's the cross-fertilization that really makes a difference in terms of creativity. And uh, because if you just are talking to the people that are in your own jurisdiction, practicing where you're practicing, you're never going to be very much different than they are. Uh, but if you are constantly exposed to people from all over the United States and some place, and sometimes the world who are doing similar things, but they're doing it just a little bit different, you get a whole new perspective on, on what you can do and how you can do it. And you end up being better than most people. So you're now doing cases, or at least working on people on their cases across the country? Uh, yeah. I'm, right now I probably have clients from... You know, the state of Washington to Florida and, and Maine to Southern California and every place in between. Wow. So, I mean, like how many, what kind of stuff do you do with, when you get brought in on a case with, by other lawyers? Well, the, um, I think sort of the, the, the main approach I have, I actually learned from Rodney Jukes. I worked with Rodney for about two and a half years, leased an apartment in Palo Alto, leased a car, and I was, I oh, was wow. there. Right. So Rodney's a trial consultant. He's out in Napa now. I guess was he at Palo yeah. Alto at the time? He was in Palo Alto at the time. So I got to know Rodney really well and his methodology, in which in, in large part I use, although it sort of is a function of your personality, and my orientation was always towards um, 
discovery and proof. And so uh, I'm, I, I'm an expert at depositions. In fact, I wrote a book called uh, Deposition, Advanced Deposition Strategy and Practice with my friend Paul Scopter because very early on in terms of my teaching and what I wanted to get good at, one of the things was cross-examination, and then I figured out that cross-examination is a pretty small part of our practice, and depositions is the thing that really made the most difference. And so, you know, I started working on my depositions, writing about depositions, became the first course advisor for AAJ's uh, Deposition College, and then I've been on the Deposition College faculty now every year it's run for the last, I guess, 15 years. And ended up writing a book about it. That's interesting because, you know, we spend so much time, like, working on trial skills and trial advocacy, and yet 90-something percent of cases settle. I mean, I try, you know, two to four cases a year, which, you know, I used to try a lot more when they're little cases, but that's considered a lot. Some people go years without trying a case, but yet we study so little on how to work up a case, how to how to take a deposition, what the strategy is. It, it does seem kind of foolish, like we're putting all of our energy on what we do the least and putting very little energy on what really makes a difference on most of our cases and, frankly, most of our income. Yeah, and so my evolution was really, you know, I need to get good at depositions. And then I, as a course, as a function of teaching in lots of courses about trial skills, one of the people I met was Rodney. And uh, Rodney and I hit it, hit it off right away because I pretty much got most of the things he said. Rodney would tend to use things, language, that was not second nature to most lawyers. Uh, and so um, I would ask him sort of dumb questions. We'd have his conversations, and, and I got what he was doing and why he was doing it and how he was doing it. And so um, the difference between deposition skills and what typically I do now and what Rodney would do is, is strategy. And deposition skills are just tactics. It's how you get from point A to point B. But what do you really want to ask? What's really important to prove in a case? What kinds of things do you need to think about that you wouldn't ordinarily think about? And one of those things, we sometimes call that jury proof, because the simplest example is if all you're proving is duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages, sort of the model for negligence cases, you're going to lose cases left and right. Because well, we have to prove things that aren't part of that model. And so the, the easiest example is if you had someone, if you had a failure to diagnose breast cancer case and uh, the lady had passed away and you go in and you prove duty, breach of duty, which would be breach of the standard of care, causation and damages, there's still questions that the jury wants you to answer. And if you don't answer them, they're going to make up their own answer. And one of the questions that can just kill you is, where was the husband? It has nothing to do with our model of duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages. But if you don't answer that question, are they going to return a verdict at all? If they do return a verdict, how much is it going to be? Because here's the husband. His wife's got breast cancer, or she has a mass in her breasts. Does he not suggest she had a second opinion? Does he never notice that the mass gets any, any bigger when she says she thinks her mass is a little bigger? Does he take her to the doctor right now? None of those questions are answered if all we talk about is duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages, and at which point they're thinking, what's he going to do with this money? He wasn't there when she really needed him. And so that's an example of jury proof. When we think about strategy for a case, our case has to involve, our strategy has to involve more than just the obvious, more than just the duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages. So how do we find out, you know, what is the jury proof that the jury wants to hear that's maybe not obvious to us thinking like lawyers, just thinking what the elements are of the cause of action? 
Well, the easiest way is I tell people to look at the lens, look at the case through the lens of a defense juror. Just imagine perhaps a family member <laughs> or a friend who's very conservative or is defense-oriented and look at all the proof through that lens. Uh, and that's sort of the beginning. And so after a while, you can kind of, I tell most of my clients that if we sit down for a day, we can probably figure out 90% of the, of the defenses that both the defense is going to raise and defense-minded jurors are going to raise. But the second way is with focus groups because what happens is, what I find is when I'm working with a lawyer or a team, we almost always uncover all of the landmines, all the things that are going to really kill our case. But what we can't do as well is prioritize those. So sometimes jurors will put things in a completely different order in terms of priority than we would. So I had a case involving a, a birth trauma case, horrible case, but it was a, from a medical negligence world, it was a strip case. You know, all the evidence is in these strips. Well, there are latent decelerations and you know, all this kind of stuff and indicating the baby's in distress and they should have done a C-section right now as opposed to letting the baby go. And that was sort of the breach of the standard of care component of the case the doctor had to use uh, vacuum-assisted extraction, which means they put like a suction cup on the skull of the baby and they kind of pull it out. And when they pull it out because the, the cranium isn't fully formed, the baby comes out with a little bit of a cone head. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll typically put a little knit cap on it and that kind of stuff, and the head reforms. It's not a problem. It doesn't cause brain injury. But that was what had happened in this particular case. The uh, So part of the proof, of course, when we did some focus groups was that um, that this had happened, but it didn't cause any particular brain injury. But the interesting fact was is that the, the doctor denied using vacuum-assisted extraction. Yet here's this picture of the child. The husband testified, I'm in there. He uses vacuum extraction. Uh, the scrub nurse had been deposed. She said to use vacuum-assisted extraction. It had nothing to do with the injury to the child. But the doctor absolutely insisted he did not do that. And when, they, when the focus groups deliberated, that was the key fact that determined liability because they said if he lied about that, he's probably lied about other things. Yeah. And it had nothing to do. You couldn't, you couldn't link that vacuum-assisted extraction with any injury the child had. So we put, it, we put it down as a landmine. It's a problem. But we didn't give it nearly the importance that the focus groups did. Interesting. And so we, uh, you and I have spent a, a depressing day yesterday finding all the defense landmines in one of my cases. Uh, it started out as a pretty good case. Yeah, it might be one before we're done. But yeah, it, it sure was not fun driving home last night uh, after spending a day finding all the defense problems. Why is it, though, you start, when you consult on a case, you start with, you know, what's the best way to defend this? What are all the defense's best points? Instead of starting with how do we fight it as a plaintiff? Well, um, Unless you make the problem clear, you really don't know what you need to do to kind of take it out. And so the first step always is let's look at the case through the lens of a defense juror. What are, and starting off with facts, so it's not just bad conclusions or biases. It's like what are the facts that they can introduce that if we cluster those facts together, what do they bubble up to? And, so, and what we often find is facts that might be, you know, they're not great, but they're not that bad 
by themselves. When we cluster them with two or three other facts, it bubbles up to something that's much more significant. And that's what we have to find a way to rebut, to make irrelevant or immaterial as to what the case is all about. So sometimes you find that there's some things you can't rebut. I mean, it's, you got some bad facts. It's a good case, but you've got these bad facts. And you know those bad facts are going to derail any deliberation. They're certainly going to hold down the value of the case if there's any chance of settling it. And so the real thing is, okay, if we can't really make those irrelevant or immaterial, we just have to embrace them. Say, so, yeah, this person had an addiction problem, but we're not here because they had an addiction problem. We're here because of this other thing. Uh, and so that's, a, that's sometimes a big adjustment because our big tendency as advocates is always to fight back on things. And sometimes that's not the smart thing to do. And so part of the process sometimes is working through the bad facts and and asking, well, what can we do to make this irrelevant or immaterial to the case? And if we can't, then we just have to accept it. Yeah, I think one of the things you, you mentioned is, you know, the trial in the jury's mind is about what you spend time at trial about. So the defense has something that's bad for your case, and you spend time fighting about it, then you're spending more and more of that trial time, and so you're telling the jury, this is something really important in the case. Whereas the defense says something, you say, yeah, that's true, who cares? Well, right. maybe... You know, so it's it's come and gone. It's not going to be what the whole case is about. Right. We want to focus our cases on the defendant's conduct and damages. We really don't want to spend our time explaining things about the plaintiff or why some piece of evidence isn't really out, isn't really important or it's not really completely true because of one thing or another. We want to basically focus on the defendant's conduct, focus on our damages, and the other things we don't want to spend any more time on than we absolutely have to because it's not going to move the ball for us. So but how many focus groups do you think you've done now? Oh, hundreds. I don't really count, but hundreds yeah. is the short answer. And what, what are some like, kind of big things you've seen kind of across the country that are kind of universal that you think would be useful to trial lawyers listening to this podcast? Well, if I, if I can recite them, I generally say there's five things. Okay. One is, in terms of any group of jurors or focus group people you have, <clears throat> when they're called into court on jury duty, you know, it's a big deal for them. And they want to, when they're listening to a case, they want to feel that they're doing something important. There's something important about the case. And so with every case, can we make our cases about something that a juror will believe is important? Because if we can, then they're going to deliberate hard for us. And if it's just about money or it's just an accident, you know, they may feel like it's a waste of their time, but they're not going to really invest very much of themselves fighting for us. And sometimes we have to have people who are going to fight for us. So we might need to make the case bigger than just one event, just bigger than something more bigger than just us making money and our client making money. Now, if it's a really catastrophic injury of a child or an older person or maybe someone else, jurors want to help that person. But the number one thing is we want to make the case about more than uh, just one event. It's more, it's more than just an accident. It's more than just getting money. How do we do that? Let's say it's a car wreck case where you don't have any obvious systematic corporate failure to go after. Well, I wish I, I, wish I had a sort of a cookie-cutter answer to that question because it's, it's completely driven by the facts of the case. Uh, and, and I wouldn't suggest that you can find those in every case, but you have to look uh, because if you start off on the front end of the case, you're saying, okay, how can we make this bigger than one event? You'll find a way. You have a shot at finding a way. You just can't find a way the week before trial. It's too late then. Yep. But when you start conceptualizing what the case is about, you start deposing people, 
there's going to be opportunities along the way where all of a sudden it can become about the defendant, about the defendant's conduct, about the defendant's decisions, making it bigger than just this one particular event. Uh, and it's, it's going to vary every time. And maybe, maybe you just can't get it. But you can never get it if you don't start off thinking about it. So that would be the number one thing you hear from focus groups all the time. They want to feel like they're doing something important. What I would try to do when I, back when I did the non-commercial car wreck cases was to try to make it about the quote-unquote defense. You can't say insurance company. You can't say insurance industry. But I would never make it about the defendant, that uh, driver. It's really like, what? okay, someone caused a crash. What are they After they hurt my client once, what are they doing to her after that? Yeah, I think and, it's a good and, approach. And hiring people to professionally lie and, and twisting things around and, and digging through people's lives and, and making false aspersions about them and dragging their character through the mud. And, you know, this can happen to anybody uh, if we don't stop it. I mean, that would be – it's not perfect, but that's what, you know, what I'd come up with. And, right. It's, and it's so a lot I, better than nothing. <laughs> so, like, when we have a biomechanic expert, for example, there's I had a trial in October, and one of the things I really went on was – they said that my lady's uh, broken leg could not have come from this particular incident the way we said it happened. And one, they were wrong. I mean, I got them to admit that they had certain books on their shelves, and we brought those books out and showed that they were 100% wrong and we were just making things up. But I also asked them, like, what, you also testify, it wasn't a hernia disc case, that you cannot get a hernia disc from a car wreck unless you break the bones. Yes. You cannot get a hernia disc from lifting something. And I knew from Vordire that I had jurors who themselves or their family members had had hernia discs from being in a car wreck, had had hernia discs from lifting things. And my whole thing is like, look, if these people can get away with this, in this case, anybody, a corporation can hurt anybody and get away with it because they can pay, they can pay this $10 million a year company to come in and say, well, you didn't get hurt in this, even though real life people get hurt like this all the time. And I think that's one of the things that inspired the jury to go fight for us. Yeah, it's illustrative of, of, a, of a, a general point, which is jurors typically are only going to pay attention to and believe expert testimony when it resonates with their own beliefs to begin with. Now, sometimes you can, maybe they know nothing about the subject matter, uh, and, and that may be a little different. But if they know anything about the subject matter at all, and a juror says something, a, an expert says something that's contrary to what the juror thinks or believes to be true, the juror's not going to change their mind just because an expert testified to it. Yeah, I, I, I used to spend so much of my life learning the science to fight experts, and I, not, not to say that I still don't, but in my experience now is that people that get paid money to come testify have so little credibility. Uh, that personally, I try to only use them to put up other literature from other sources that back up the opinions that they have and never rely on them. But I, I just feel like we never get hurt that badly by a defense expert unless the juror already believes that to be true, in which case they probably didn't even need the expert. Yeah. I think the, uh, I mean, it's, this is a strategic question, but in most cases the reasons we need experts, have to have experts, is we have to get past our Rule 56 motion, our motion for summary judgment, and potentially we have to get past the motion for directed verdict. And so that's the number one reason to have an expert. And, of course, the second reason is the other side has one, and so you need someone just to balance off that that discussion or argument. At the end of the day, you know, jurors tend to, jurors tend to think that the two experts have sort of neutralized each other. And so the, the ball really doesn't get moved very much, but we have to protect ourselves perhaps if the other side is an expert just by providing that contrary view. And to me, that's why I really like to have the learned treatises, the, you know, okay, our expert says this, their expert says that, but there's a book that the defense expert has in his library that he relies on that says it's on our side, or there's an article on a journal that he subscribes to 
that's on our side or some standard that's on our side. I, I think that that can be the tiebreaker, or at least that can be what we want to present. I, I never want, if I can avoid it, to present a case based on my experience, my experts' experience, opinions. I mean, I want them to be backed up by something authoritative. Yeah. Well, one of the things I do when I'm working on deposition or case strategy, um, the, the, the thing that's really important to do and I really enjoy doing is, is okay, what really is strategically, what do we really want jurors to take away from this case? What are our, what are our home run type of rules um, that when the jurors hear that, they're going to nod their heads and say, well, of course and that the defendant cannot really deny and are directly applicable to the facts of the case. And, and so working through what those are often means working through a lot of sort of um, sometimes subject matter expertise that the attorney may have or expert reports where they tend to sort of couch everything in expert terms and principles when it's really simple, something very, very simple that people are going to say, well, of course. So. I was working with some lawyers who were doing some talc cases, and we started. I said, "Well, and it was very complicated. I mean, because all those products cases end up being complicated because there's multiple experts on each side, and it's highly contested. But you know, the rhetorical question was, when is it okay for a manufacturer to put asbestos in a consumer product and not tell the consumer?" And, and so that's a very simple way of looking at the case, and that's what we want to try to get. If we're going to communicate with jurors, it needs to be simple. It needs to be the kind of thing they can answer the question themselves, and they know the answer to the question. Uh, and it's directly relevant to why there's a cause of action to begin with and why these people are injured and on and on and on and on. So working through the case to find that particular, those kinds of rhetorical questions or rules that potentially are going to drive decision-making and discussion in the jury is, it's, for me, it's a lot of fun. I think it's a lot of fun for anybody because we, we really get to the part of lawyering that really is using your brain yeah. as opposed to some of the other things we have to do which are tedious. So you said there are five things that you've learned. Uh, and the first was that jurors want to feel they're doing something important. What's the, what are the other four things? Well, this, the second is um, really much related to that. And it's they want to, they want to punish or affect change. So when, when they see something that's wrong, and especially if there's been any kind of history where this person continues to do something, they want to punish, they want to affect change. So that's always number two. Um, number three is um, they are suspicious. No matter what your proof is, they are always suspicious of the plainest proof, the plainest evidence, the plainest motivation. And that tends to mean that in terms of our proof, if that is the general attitude in the veneer, and it is, that we probably have to overprove our cases to some extent uh, because we think it's, well, it's sort of A, B, C, everybody gets that. This is uncontested. How could it be an argument? And the answer is they just don't see it that way. And so we have to probably, from our perspective, overprove things because the people that are our, our audience are very suspicious of the evidence, the motivation, and the rest of that that is associated with being a plaintiff and having a plaintiff's lawsuit. And how do you draw that line between, you know, overproving because they're suspicious and we have no credibility at all when we walk in the courtroom and then being so repetitious that we bore them and insult them? Oh, well, you know, the, the answer is I, th I see them as different things. Okay. Um, but certainly if you ask jurors the thing that really irritates them the most, it is repetition. Like, we didn't get it the first time. That's different than overproving it. Uh, 
overproving it is is where you may have one or more than one piece of evidence that tends to prove a point. Repetition is saying the same thing over and over okay. again, like they're idiots, and they resent that, which is completely understandable. But they appreciate the multiple pieces of evidence yeah. proving. because it's not just one piece of evidence that proves it's three. So I remember when I worked with Rodney, Rodney would always insist for any point that you wanted to prove, you have to have three pieces because that way they can discount one, but then there's still two more yeah. that tend to prove that. So we want multiple pieces of evidence proving every point that we have, even if we think there's not any real argument about it, because we think there's not any real argument because we're lawyers. The lawyer on the other side doesn't argue about it because he's a lawyer, but the people in the box are not necessarily lawyers, and they have an argument about it, and we only have one piece of evidence, and all of a sudden, here's a piece of our, our case that's kind of falling apart, and we don't even know it. It's funny how much harder it is to win a civil case than a criminal case, despite the the difference in burdens of proof. I remember I had a young associate come work for me, and he's like, "Man, I've been putting people, you know, behind bars under a, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. This preponderance of the evidence stuff's going to be easy." I said, "Okay." I said, "I'm going to go try a chiropractor only car wreck case." Yeah, good luck. He came back and said, "Man, this is hard." <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so the the fourth one I'd say is um, rules. You know, when people, when jurors are having sort of decide something, and it's it's typically something they've never decided before, um, they want to know are there any rules that they can apply because it just facilitates the decision making. It's not just arguing back and forth. And so Rick Friedman and um, Friedman Malone, of course, wrote Rules of the Road, and um, it lays out basically why you want to have those rules to take care of the sort of the ambiguity that can occur in terms of what the proof is and what they're supposed to do. So they're always looking for rules. So I think that's a that, that's sort of a standard thing that in any deliberation with a with a focus group, they're going to talk about or are there any rules that apply and what are the rules and, and, and how, how do we use them. I think that's also part of their one because jurors, I, I think, fundamentally want to be fair and want to do the right thing. And I learned this from you, but I think it's it's – true based on my experiences is jurors don't necessarily see even medical bills as compensation they see it as punishment to the defendant for doing something wrong and if it's just some amorphous standard instead of breaking a rule if you don't know what the rules are when you, before you did it is it really fair to punish somebody no and that's that's absolutely true and so um so if we talk about the first thing they want to know is they they want to they want to feel like they're doing something important uh they, uh, they really want to punish or affect change. They want to know if there's any rules. They're suspicious of the evidence presenting, which is a good reason why we want to overproof things. And um, then I think lastly, they, they always want to know the prior history of the plaintiff and defendant's conduct. And part of that is if they're going to punish somebody, prior conduct is going to be part of the rationale of why they should be punished. So now, the problem for us is we don't always get to talk about the prior conduct of the defendant. But the defendant always gets to talk about prior conduct of the plaintiff, and that's why they always request a 10-year medical history. And so the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they don't get a 10-year medical history of the plaintiff, their own client, and they don't really pour over it because that's exactly what's going to happen on the other side. And the defendant can just kind of point to sort of these irrelevant details in the medical history and completely undermine a plaintiff's case. And so 
prior and, and jurors are they're all about that they want to know the prior history of the plaintiff because they're thinking is this something they've had before are they complaining of something that they already had to begin with and now they're just trying to get a payday for it which brings me to an interesting observation that i, I learned from a focus group uh, probably a little more than a year ago the issue in the case in that particular case happened to be pre-existing pre-existing condition so i started off the particular group talking about pre-existing condition and asked people you know how many of you know what a pre-existing condition was and everybody raised their hand everybody had heard the word pre-existing condition and thought they knew what it was now in most of our cases i mean we have we have people who have pre-existing conditions and we all know what the law is on pre-existing conditions we know there's going to be a jury instruction on pre-existing condition we have proof from a physician that our client's pre-existing condition was aggravated by the trauma from this event and the severity was in, severity of that injury or that condition was increased as a result of that trauma. So that's our proof and we know, okay, we got, we got to cover it. I'm not worried about the pre-existing condition. But when I asked these people to define pre-existing condition, their life experience of pre-existing condition was not like mine or yours. They never heard of jury instruction of pre-existing condition. They hadn't dealt with it in the context of litigation or negligence claims. So their life experience was with health insurance. So to them, pre-existing condition is when someone has been diagnosed and treated for a particular medical condition, and that could affect their future coverage. So when we say, stand up in trial and say, our client had a pre-existing condition, to them, what they're hearing is this person had this prior problem before, it had been diagnosed, and they'd been treated for it. And that's a problem. Uh, now, I, I wish I could say how many years, I don't know how many, I've been practicing. When I found that out, I was probably practicing 30 years when I finally happened to do a focus group where I discovered this whole thing about they're defining this term completely different than we are. And so how many of us have tried a case where we stand up and talk about pre-existing condition with no idea about the possible interpretation for that word by the people in the box, which generally is not going to help us. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, I think I've won some cases. We probably have all won some cases despite that. Um, but the, the moral of the story is, is if you're trying a case and you're using words, you cannot assume that they interpret those words or define those words the same way we do, even if they say they understand the word. And pre-existing condition is just a great example that applies to all of our cases. And, you know, how would they define it? Naturally, they define it as applies to them, and that means health insurance, which is just not the way we want them to think about it. Yeah, absolutely not. So what kind of terms could we use? Oh, I think you can use pre-existing condition, but instead of just kind of blowing by it, you've got to spend some time talking about what it means in a legal context. Because if you just pre-existing condition, I've got this instruction, and the doctor's going to say that the injury, it was pre-existing, but it was asymptomatic. Of course, how do they know what asymptomatic means? And the trauma accelerated the severity thereof, blah, 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 that sort of language that we have. Are they really getting it, or is it kind of going over their head? And the answer is, is we got to make sure they get it, because yep. if they misinterpret it, we're in trouble. So I, I don't have an alternative term, although that might be a good idea. Yeah, I've talked about you know someone who had a 45-year-old back, you know. Oh sure, That's instead great. of a you know pre-existing degenerative changes like the gonna... person's gone through life. If you look at X-ray, it's not going to look like a 20-year-old's, but it doesn't mean that the person needs surgery, that they have pain. It just yeah. means they have a 40-year-old back. Or the back of a 70-year-old, that means it's even yeah. better. <laughs> So those are sort of the five things, and I think that I don't care what kind of case you've got. If you talk to people long enough, you're going to hear those things in one way or another. Now, you're not going to hear it from everybody in the group, but collectively during the course of a deliberation or discussion, you're going to hear about 
you know, they want to, is there, are we doing anything important here? Is there a chance to send a message or affect change? They're going to be suspicious of what you say. They're going to know the prior history of the plaintiff and the prior history of the defendant. And they're going to want to know if there are any rules every time, every group, every case. Uh, they also, there's also some, uh, some things they always ask, too, that's part of that, for example. They always ask if alcohol or drugs are involved, always. And so in our cases, you know, when alcohol and drugs aren't involved, do we prove alcohol and drugs are not involved? The answer is we need to yeah. because they're going to ask that. And if, it, there's a, if there's a filling defect, I mean, there's no proof on it at all, it's a distraction during the deliberations. They start talking about something that's not even an issue in the case and there's no proof on it. How does that end up? And the answer is it never ends up good for us. So if there's no alcohol and drugs are involved, they're going to ask about it every time. We need to say there's no alcohol and drugs are involved. We need to have evidence that there's no alcohol and drugs involved. Because it doesn't take very much. There's not much fight back by the other side. But if we just ignore it, we're ignoring the jury proof that's in every case. So what are some tips you have? You've written you know, a book on focus groups of, for a lawyer, other than buying your book. Uh, what are some tips if people want to start doing focus groups? Oh, but I always say buy the book. Yeah. And the reason to buy I, the book. And I own the book, so. Good, good. The reason, the reason to buy the book is that um, if you want to do focus groups, you'll get some ideas from it that you would have a hard time coming up with on your own, as well as forms, processes, all the rest of it. And I think the book, the purpose of the book is really to set you free in terms of focus groups because lawyers get hung up on what a focus group is. And they think, well, I've got to have X number of people and they have to be in this kind of demographic spread and on and on and on and on. And the answer is, no, they don't. I mean, you're not going to have a statistically significant sample because that would take at least 400 people. So who could I invite to come to the community room at the local you know, community center or a church basement or my office or someplace else? And let's say it's just, because I haven't done this before, I just want to invite four people. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring them in, and, and I'm, I don't really have to worry too much about who they are because... I just want to let them talk about my case. Now, it's better if it's not family members, you know, who can try to, kind of try to tell you what you want to hear. But people who aren't there to tell you what you want to hear, just let's talk about the case. What do you think about? How do you feel about? And just hear what ordinary people say when they start talking about what the issues are in your case. You don't have to tell them the whole case. You could just have a conversation about one little piece of it. It doesn't have to go on for four hours. It can be an hour and a half or an hour. And so if you bring people in, you pay them, I'll pay you 20 bucks a piece for an hour, you can get people come and talk to you for 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. And can you focus the entire case and every issue? No, but they want to walk out. You're going to learn a lot more about that issue than you did when they walked in. The problem is, is then you say, okay, well, I need to do that again. So I'd much rather someone do four conversations like that that don't cost them a lot of money where they're learning something every time and maybe learning something a little different every time than spending thousands and thousands of dollars on some big exercise. Now, if you can do that, too, that's fine. But the point of the book is you can focus all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be very expensive. It doesn't have to be very exotic. You don't have to worry. All, all the stuff that you're probably worrying about, you don't really need to worry about. It's not science. We're not relying 100% on what four people tell us. We're just trying to learn about the case. And so if you bring four people in and say, how much do you think this case is worth? Well, I would say that's stupid because it's four people. They're not representative of anything. It's not representative of what the deliberations could be in the real case. Talk to them about the issues in the case. Don't talk to them about money. Talk to them about, you know, 
what's going to, how this particular piece of evidence is going to impact the way the case. So it's the case. So if it is a person who had been drinking at home and they're going to the 7-Eleven to get another six-pack and they get rear-ended, but they have alcohol, they're not, they're not legally intoxicated, but they have alcohol in the system, how do you feel about that person suing the person who rear-ended them? That's a conversation. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to say, but you're going to learn about that conversation because if you're not thinking that's a potential problem, you'd be crazy. You say, I think it's a potential problem. I wonder what people say. And so you do four people. There's four people talking about it in a way that's good for you, mean that the issue's gone? No, you probably need to talk to some more people. But, <laughs> you know, maybe you talk to the next people about something slightly different, and that comes in at the end. And so the short answer is the more people you talk to and the more chances you have to learn from them about what they think are – is going on in the case or what concerns them about the case, the better off you're going to be and the better the case is going to be. Yeah, I find, you know, there's definitely a value of spending the money on a big case to get a professional to go in there to have professional recruiters and, you know, bring in 30 people and have multiple discussion groups. But I also found that, you know, even on a big case, you can only do that a couple times. Uh, whereas we could do a bunch of them for, you know, 800 to $2,000 each get a bunch of information as we go on and then you know towards the end if it's going to go then we can bring in a professional and and do that but i'd rather just get a lot more data and information than try to i haven't found that big of a qualitative difference between our fifteen hundred dollar ones and our thirty and forty thousand dollar ones to be honest with you no and i I'm, i get hired to do focus groups all the time and i like them and i think quite frankly that you know i'm gonna i'm gonna get more information on a group than anybody you're gonna hire and if you do it yourself but that's not to say you shouldn't do any of this other stuff too yeah you should. And, you sh and so, for example, should you do a focus group before you file suit? I'm going, well, why wouldn't you? It doesn't have to be a big deal, but, I mean, you could bring in, I don't know, let's say six people, and you have three cases. And you give them three hours, and you spend an hour talking about each case, and then you make a decision, are we going to file all three of these, or are we going to only file one? And I find if you can, you know, if you have a case that justifies the time, you know, doing them before you take any depositions. Absolutely. Doing them before you draft your discovery response because you find out what is important and what's not and the other thing i found i got an oil field explosion case it was my first one i didn't know anything about the oil field i did a focus group only three people of the 12 showed up but all three of them knew people because it was in a county where a lot of people worked in the oil field they knew terms they knew how kind of things worked and i got my whole discovery strategy from those three people in yep. case it turned into a great case now i also worked with my experts and did a bunch of other stuff and i think we did 15 or 16, I think three with a professional consultant and the other, you know, 12 or 13 on our own uh, focus groups before we finish that case. But even from that very first one with only three people there, and I was like ready to, I was mad, I was ready to cancel it. But I said, well, let's, we're here, you know, I've, I've come, you know, I'm traveled 150 miles, I'm in a Hampton Inn in Alice, Texas, why not? Uh, and I learned so much. Yeah. Well, you, you hit on something that is actually we recommend in the book is, you can do what um, I sometimes refer to as an expert focus group, which is if it's in a subject matter that you know is going to be dispositive of the case, there's going to be experts on it, maybe you don't understand it as well, just bring in three or four people who have experience in that area. So they could be engineers or nurses or accountants or, you know, prison guards or anything. And you talk about the case and you learn a ton about the case. And if you're paying them 50 bucks a piece for example, you know, you're out of pocket 200 bucks and you have $20,000 worth of information that you would have to pay for to get from an expert. Uh, so, you know, truck drivers, you know, 
nursing home employees, LPNs. It just doesn't make any difference what your cause of action is. You can find somebody whose life experience is directly related to your liability theory or the negligence in the case. Talk to those people. And those people are your focus group, and you get a ton of information from for what really isn't very much money. And they love, I mean, the way I do focus groups, the way we tell you to do focus groups in the um, book, this is not a threatening information. We're not challenging people over what they think or believe. We're trying to find out what they think or believe. And we tell them, you're not going to say anything that's going to hurt my feelings. My job is really to find out what you think or believe about these issues. And we're all going to be friends at the end of the afternoon or morning, and, and, and I'll respect everything you say, and I hope that you respect everything that the person next to you says. And it ends up being people say, this was so much fun. This is the greatest conversation I've had in years. And that's what, that's what is really going on. Now, I don't really think that happens when you have 20 people. No. The other thing I thought was funny, a lot of times we ask them who they think hired them at the end, and they usually assume it's the big company because they think who else would spend the money to do yeah. all this work. Yeah. Well, you, look like, you look like one of those prosperous big, big company attorneys, Michael. <laughs> that's what it really is. Well, I, I eat well, nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you let's say you get a case, you go there, you look for all the defense landmines, well, you know, what they're going to do. You think of how am I likely to overcome them. You do a focus group or one or more to find out how are people going to view this. Then you go into depositions. Uh, you've actually literally written the book on depositions. What are some things you've learned, for, you know, advice you can give us for doing depositions to try to prove our cases? Well, I mean, I think the – Let's start with sort of the 30B6 deposition or the defendant's deposition. Because what we're looking for, I'm looking for, I'm not really, although you may ask who, what, where, why, when, how questions, the goal of the deposition isn't to get information about who, what, where, why, when, how. I mean, that's, my goal is to get uh, binding testimony from the mouth of the defendant or from the mouth of the defendant's corporate representative that is going to make a difference in turning the case. And... Uh, I think you, you, anybody can do it if you spend enough time thinking about the case and what your case is really about. If you want to go in and find out about what their educational background is and what the organizational structure is and all those, you can do all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I want them to give me something that I can use in a mediation, an opening statement, or on cross-examination, or my experts can adopt that makes a difference in case outcome. So what are those things? Yeah, how do you do that? Well, I think you have to figure out, I said, okay, well, what rules are there that if this witness acknowledges those rules, help move the ball a little further down the row in terms of liability in this case? And so it could be something as simple as, do trucking companies have an obligation to hire safe drivers? And they say, yes, of course. And then, then you know, the, this is this is called the Miller Mousetrap. It's a technique we teach at the schools. So you give them a premise. They say yes because they have to say yes. And you say, is that important? It's an open-ended question. You're not supposed to ask that, are you? But when you ask an open-ended question, they have a hard time prevaricating. So they answer your question. They say, yes, it is important. And then you say, why is it important? It's another open-ended question. They say, why is it important? So now at this point, they're in the trap, as we say, because they said that the obligation or the principle or the rule or the standard exists. It's important. Now they're explaining in their own language why it is important. You know, if you want more from me, you can say anything else, any other reasons why it's important. Then you get to say things like, would it be wrong if a company ignored that? And they're going to say, 
Yeah, that'd be wrong. And then if you're lucky, you say, would it be reckless if a company ignored that? They give you reckless. Now, they haven't said that they were reckless or their company was reckless. You're saying, <clears throat> this is a piece of conduct that is important. Here's why it's important. We, we may expect other people to do it. If people didn't do it, it would be wrong. And if they didn't do it, it would be reckless. Now, that's a great piece of evidence to have from a defendant or a defendant's representative. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing we're looking for. But you don't get it from the seat of your pants. You've got to plan for it in advance. You may, may have more than one. And I always recommend with any witness that is going to potentially be difficult or adverse, the way you control them is with documents. And so when we get to areas like this where we're asking rhetorical questions or trying to introduce rules that we think are partially dispositive of critical issues in the case, we always use a document with it. Because then they're looking at something, they're reading a question, they're checking a box, they're signing a policy, they're doing something that afterwards we have an exhibit of the deposition we can use in a mediation or an opening statement or in cross-examination or with experts that basically is a rule that makes a difference. It's a principle or guideline uh, or practice that makes a difference in the way juries see the liability of the defendant in the case. Do you take really long, short? Does it depend as far as the depositions? Short. I mean, I, well, I probably have taken a deposition that was four hours long, but not often. Yeah, because I tend to take very short depositions too, and it, it surprises some people. Uh, I mean, I went all the way to Salt Lake City last week, and I took two depositions in about an hour and a half because there was one big issue in the case. I mean, the our 18-wheeler driver was stopped. Their 18-wheeler driver hit our stopped object, our stopped 18-wheeler, and hurt us. Uh, you know, it's a parking lot collision, but it was the fifth one the guy had had in the eight months that he'd worked there. Yeah. That's my case. And so we talk about, you know, having safe drivers, having, you know, looking at accidents or crashes, determining whether they're preventable, what, what you do to stop the next one. And we talked about their safety guy, about how that was important. That took about 15 minutes, and then... Went through the five of these, and you know what was it about the fifth one that made you fire him? That you didn't fire him about the fourth. What, did he, what retraining did he have? What did anyone talk to him? And he had to admit they did nothing until they fired him after he hit our guy. Yeah, uh, that was the case. And so, you know, yeah, there were, I could have found some little. They didn't double check. They didn't go double check one of his. They didn't check his medical card. He had a medical card, but they didn't have a copy of their file. So what? You know, they they didn't go check all, have all the former employers listed on the application. They should have. It was a regulatory violation. So what? That didn't cost us rag. The fact is, you got a guy that had hit five non-moving things in eight months. Right. He shouldn't be driving an 18-wheeler. And, and did they find out? He could have killed himself. Did they find out for this poor driver? Why does he keep doing that? What's wrong with him? You know. And they didn't. That was the case. Yeah. Doesn't have to be three hours. It doesn't. Have, by the way, to me, um, you know, no case needs an expert or as many experts if you've worked it out properly. Yeah. Uh, because most of the things that experts might or could testify to are things that if you've got a deposition strategy that makes sense for what the real issues are in the case, you can get them in without an expert. And if you have to have an expert, their burden is so much less because you've laid the foundation through the mouths of the defendant or the corporate rep for the defendant. Yeah, I agree. Now, one of the things we've, you and I, and you sent me some emails on this, uh, is you've done a lot of work on metaphors. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a... I had read a, a series of books um, principally by a guy named Gerald Zaltman, who is a Ph.D. Uh, on faculty at the 
Harvard Business School. And he was basically a marketing specialist. That's what his area was. And one of the things that he taught and developed and wrote several books on is the use of metaphors as a way of marketing. Because uh, his work earlier had been preceded by a guy named Clotaire Rapai, who wrote a book called Culture Code. And um, both those books have to do with if you're trying to communicate with people that are in all kinds of demographic groups, all kinds of different age groups in different parts of the country, do you have to come up with a different sort of marketing approach and plan for each of those little subgroups? I mean, if you do, it's a nightmare. And what Clotaire Pie, who became a marketing person, just like Gerald Zaltman did, discovered, was that there's a common thread when it comes to thinking about a product or an issue that is common in a particular group of people in a society. And if you figure out what that common thread is, then you can do marketing, one piece of marketing that incorporates that common thread or that thought or that code, Clotaire Pie would say, and it's going to resonate with everybody. So, for example, he did marketing for, I think it was Folgers. And so they're selling coffee, but do they have to have a different ad for all these different, you know, farmers and factory workers and doctors and hospital workers? And No. The culture code for coffee is smell. Mm-hmm. And so their ads always featured the smell of coffee in the morning, which everybody who drank coffee, no matter what kind of coffee, they immediately know what that is. And that was, that was the metaphor for coffee. That was the deep metaphor for coffee is smell. Uh, Clotera Pye had also done work with the healthcare industry and had hired, been hired by Johnson & Johnson. And he's the one who initiated this research on what's the culture code in our society for doctors. And the answer is heroes. Uh, what's the culture code in our society for nurses? And the answer is it's either mother or angel. But the culture code for hospitals in other words, this is when you bring a bunch of people in and you interview them at length and you have them being pictures that reflect their thoughts and feelings about this. The culture code for hospitals just like is different than doctors and nurses. It's processing plan. So if you are litigating and you're trying to decide who are we more likely to get a verdict against, the hero, the nurse, or the processing plant, <laughs> the answer is you know what. Uh, and so the idea behind metaphor is if you ask people a question, they will answer the question. It doesn't mean that's what they really think. And they may not, they spent no time thinking about it. They may have never thought about it or talked about it before. So the fact that they've answered that question, does that mean a week later you ask them the same question, they're gonna give you the same answer? And says, probably not. Does that mean if they're in a deliberation, that answer is gonna prevail? And the answer is, probably not. They're not really invested in it. They haven't thought anything about it. And so if you ask people what they think, they'll always answer you in words, but they don't think in words. We think in pictures. And so the easiest example, as I tell people, is oh, think of a whale. When people think of whale, they don't think of the, the, the letters W-H-A-L-E. They don't think of the Wikipedia definition. They think of a picture of a whale as they visualize a whale. And so if you want people to, if you want to get to the core of what people may think or feel about an issue, you can ask them what they think, and you can ask a bunch of people what they think. And one of the, but one of the other things you can do to validate that and get a different insight is says, look, would you bring me eight to 10 pictures that reflect your thoughts and feelings about, and then you state your issue or case question, in a not ad, without introducing any advocacy? Just introduce the state question. Bring me pictures that reflect your thoughts and feelings about it. Then the interview is about the pictures. It's not about their words. So what's in this picture? What does this represent? Is there something just outside the frame of the picture? What happened before this picture was taken? What happened after it? And you get a whole different perspective on, 
on what they really think about that particular issue based on the pictures that they choose. And when you see people answering the same question and you see this that there's sort of continuum in terms of the pictures and images they're choosing and how they're interpreting them, then you have a metaphor. You have a metaphor that's going to resonate potentially with your jury. So when you're talking about a particular issue, it's like, what's going to make sense to them when I, desc when I describe this? Could you give an example? Sure. Uh, so <clears throat> I had a case involving, I still I have a caseload of about a dozen cases. I tried two cases last year, although that was the first time in five years I tried a case because everything settles now. <clears throat> but I had a, what I thought was a really good dog bite case. I'd never really tried a dog bite case to verdict. But this one I, I, I cranked up, and it had to do with a young couple. They're in a hat shop. They've got their uh, three-year-old daughter with them. Uh, the husband's looking at some hats. The shop manager has her dog there, says it's okay to pet the dog, but at some point the dog bites this little girl. So the, the, the question was, is how do you feel about a, a, a mother and father whose child is bit by a dog in a shop while they're present? Right? Because there's no comparative fault on them, really. But it doesn't make any difference. I mean, how are people going to feel about them uh, not being there? And, and so one of the pictures that came back that, that I most remember most clearly and that the discussion they remember most clearly was that uh, a picture of a lizard whose eye moves constantly in, you know, in a 180-degree arc. It's not like our eyes. And so this eye can constantly, while they're, without moving their head, can move all the way around, up and down. And the participant said, if you're a mother, you've got to have the lizard's eye. Hmm. You, got to, you have to know where your baby is at all times and where else is going on. Uh, and so that's an example of like, hmm, we're not going to explain our way around that. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was, it was a good case of liability. And we can talk about the statute and the obligation of the dog owner and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, if you're the mama, you've got to have the lizard eye. And so the other stuff was, we'd get some other stuff that wasn't quite as memorable as that. But at the end of the day, it was going to be hard not to have that mother's presence affect the case in a significant way. How the case turned out? Not as good as I'd like it. <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had to settle it, is yep. the short answer. And when, the reason I said we had to settle it is because that's what the client insisted. So I would have liked more money, but they were happy. And gave every penny to the kid. They put it into a trust. They didn't take a penny for themselves. Yeah, so uh, so their good. case, you'll have another one. Hopefully, they don't. Yeah, and they were good. They were su they were super people. So I was happy to represent them. So you're here working with us this week on a case. What are all the kind of things you you do for lawyers besides working on your own cases or you know co-counseling? What are the other things you do with lawyers on cases? Well, typically the stuff we're doing here, which is basically let's let's figure out what the case is really about, which is build a model of the opposition case, figure out what can we take out or not take out so when we get through the landmines when we build that metal of the opposition case the next step is always how can we make these things irrelevant or immaterial to what the case is about and when we get to an area where we're having real problems we can't really prove that it's irrelevant or immaterial we can't even prove it's incorrect then it's like okay that's a problem so that's the point at which it's like let's reevaluate where we are in the case because if we can't make it irrelevant we can't make it immaterial and we can't prove it's incorrect it's going to affect the outcome of the case, and it's probably going to hurt us in a bad, bad way. So we've got to probably have to settle the case. That's the smart money probably at that point. But if we can make it irrelevant or immaterial, that's what we want to do with rebuttal. Then it says that we take the rebuttal, we've, we've made all this really awful stuff 
irrelevant or immaterial what the case is really about. We're going to resequence it. We're going to have our own, and we're going to start our own story order, and then we have a case in chief. Uh, and at some point, if you're going to do a focus group, we have a, just a perfect script. So in our case, we have three day and a half. Let's say we have 30 out, 30 man hours in this model of the opposition case. So if you're doing a focus group and you want to make sure you had a robust discussion about the issues that a defendant might raise in the actual trial, we've got it. And we also have the rebuttals. So we have another. 24 hours in rebuttal, man hours in rebuttal, to see if we can make those things irrelevant and material. And so to us, we're making the irrelevant and material, but the importance of having the focus group is what do they think? Yeah. You know, or do they come up with anything else? So you also do focus groups for people? All, all the time, yeah. But my preference is to do this first, because right. then we're not going in, it's not just a, let's throw some stuff on the wall and see if it sticks. We're really focusing on, we can figure out what they think is bad in advance. I want to figure out, do our fixes work? Uh, to me, that's the real value in doing the group, is finding out whether the things you think that should solve the problems are really working or not. Because if they aren't, then we've got to spend a lot more time in working on that solution. Absolutely. And if someone wants to get a hold of you, uh, how do they do that? Oh, uh, P. Miller, for Philip Miller, P. Miller at SeriousInjury.com. That's my email. I look at my email all the time. Okay. You have a website? Yeah, just PhilipHMiller.com. Okay. Uh, and they can and they can always um, I'll give you my cell number. It's six one five. That's Nashville, six one five three nine four seventy three hundred. And so I'm just like I check my email all the time. I check my check my text messages and calls all the time too. Well, I've really enjoyed working with you so far, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of our day. Although some of it's been a little depressing, but it's been important to find out about my case. It's I know. Not, not you, but it's uh, it's been a very good experience. I'm learning a lot, and uh, I encourage anyone else who has a good case to call Philip and find out how to do it better. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Philip Miller. I appreciate you tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.